2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Naldithanshul. It's fair to say he's beloved in Connecticut. Walt Woodward has been our state historian for nearly two decades, but next year, he'll retire. The search for his replacement has begun. Today, Where We Live, Woodward joins us, and we talk to historian and UConn professor, Manisha Sinha, who's leading the search. And later, the city of New London will soon unveil a black heritage trail. We learn about the inspiration behind the trail, and we want to hear from you, too. How do you think about public history? Are there chapters of Connecticut history that you want to learn more about? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 Share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Walt Woodward, Connecticut State Historian, joins us now on Zoom. Walt, welcome back.
3: Good morning, Lucy. Thank you.
2: Oh, Walt, are you still there? <laughs> Walt, you just broke up. Can you hear me now?
3: <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. How is this? Any better?
2: <laughs> yes, I can hear you now. So thanks for joining the show again. And I guess I should start off by saying, say it ain't so, Walt, you're really retiring?
3: Oh, no, it's time. I'm really happy. <laughs> this is, I, I've had, what, 17 years in the best job in history, and it's time to let someone else take the reins.
2: So when we talk about the state historian role, um, just to be clear, you you aren't involved in the search uh, for this new person, but talk about what your hopes are for this role, having been in it for seventeen years now. Well, one
3: of the best things about the job I have is that this is a this is one of the few jobs you can have that is really a hybrid academic and public facing history uh, job. And what makes that so wonderful is that you have one foot in the world of teaching and research and the kind of scholarly work that is at the the foundation of history, and then you have this whole other side of your career that is public-facing and connecting, uh, connecting the people of Connecticut, in my case, with all these wonderful ideas that scholarship produces. So what I hope for the next state historian is that they uh, that they have that passion for bringing history to the public and really connecting the people of Connecticut with the amazing history of this state? If they bring the same kind of feel for it uh, that that has energized me throughout this, I think it'll be terrific.
2: Mm-hmm. You've been on the show before, and listeners hear you on Connecticut Public Radio often. Uh, I'm wondering if you can talk more about the history of the state historian, because really you're the, only the fifth person in this role.
3: Yeah, it, it it is a really interesting history. The position of state historian was created back in 1935 when the state celebrated its 300th anniversary. And uh, for people who don't know, that was an absolutely pull out all the stops uh, uh, event. They had uh, they had exhibitions, they had parades in every state. There was one parade where they estimate that half the people of Connecticut actually either participated in or viewed it. And as as they were gearing up for that event, they appointed a state historian both to advise on. Uh, the different events, but also to oversee a series of publications on Connecticut history. There there were a series of 69 pamphlets, uh, they're called the Blueback Pamphlets, and they were published over a number of years, and the state historian position was created to continue after the tercentenary and supervise the publication of those pamphlets. The the first state historian was named George Dutcher, and he he served as a member of the State Library Board. He uh, he was paid by them to supervise the publications, and that work morphed into publishing the public records of the state of Connecticut. He was succeeded in 1941 by Edward Larrabee, who was the renowned publisher of the Benjamin Franklin Papers, who continued for 10 years as a state historian of Connecticut. He focused on the public records. In 1951, Albert Van Dusen, who was uh, at the University of Connecticut, became the state historian, and he really, uh, I think, began that academic hybrid focus. He published uh, a book on Connecticut history that's still one, you know, it's a coffee table history. There hasn't been one like it since then, uh, and that was, you know, that that went into several editions. It sold over 30,000 copies. It was kind of a high watermark for a textbook publishing on Connecticut history. He was succeeded by my predecessor, Christopher Collier, who uh, was a very active constitutional historian and legal scholar. And he, he, he helped establish the infrastructure in that connects academic and public history today in Connecticut. So he was instrumental in founding the Association for the Study of Connecticut History. Uh, he helped establish the journal, the Connecticut History Review. And uh, he was very active in teacher education. And he, like me, I think did that that uh, scholarly and public-facing role. I came into the job in 2004 and uh, sought to continue that legacy and really put an emphasis on connecting the people of Connecticut with their history because uh, it it seemed that over the years people had really become disengaged from that
2: topic. Again, you're hearing Walt Woodward, Connecticut State historian. Uh, Walt's going to retire next year, and there's a search underway for his replacement. We're going to be talking about that coming up uh, here on Where We Live. But, Walt, when you mentioned that you began in 2004, a lot has changed uh, since then. And we think about um, the digital world we live in and and how you've had to adapt in this role and, you know, the future of this role for our listeners and our residents. We think about engaging people in history.
3: You know, it's really interesting. In preparing to come on the show, I was looking back at uh, actually some information on Kit Collier, and I saw an article that the Hartford Current published when he retired, and it was a very glowing uh, glowing encomium to him. And then in the last sentence it said, uh, his replacement is Walter Woodward, a person who uh, comes to history from the advertising profession. Perhaps he can bring those skills to bear on uh, on history in Connecticut, and yeah I laughed to myself because in many ways that 's exactly what I did. I did come out of the advertising and communications industry before I became a historian, and I realized I saw that I saw that industry transformed by technology, and I knew coming into the history profession that it too was going to be per, uh, transformed by the digital world. And so I embraced it early uh, and have tried as state historian to really use the, the incredible reach of digital resources to make that connection with people as broad as possible.
2: And one of those connections is your podcast, Walt?
3: Uh, I do. With Connecticut Explored Magazine, uh, we have for several years now produced a podcast called Grating the Nutmeg, Uh, of course, being the nutmeg state, we scratch beneath the surface. And uh, we're up to, I think, 125, 126 episodes. And each of those are, are, you know, unique explorations into a topic in Connecticut history. And they're very broad ranging from a museum exhibit. I recently did one with Kevin Johnson, who is a reenactor who uh, who uh, a wonderful African American reenactor who tells the story of, uh, of Civil War soldiers and Revolutionary War heroes, African Americans who fought in those conflicts. The the range of stories in Grading the Nutmeg are uh, really diverse and and it's a wonderful sampler of Connecticut history. If if people uh, are into podcasting, you can search in any just about any of the uh, podcast apps or podcast servers, grating the nutmeg and sample one or two of the things. I, I think you'll enjoy it.
2: It's been a great resource for this show, uh, Where We Live. Uh, Walt, again, is our Connecticut State historian uh, who will be retiring next year. We're going to talk about uh, the search uh, to replace Walt. Say it ain't so, but it is. And it's a good time, as you mentioned, Walt, uh, uh, to retire. 17 years is a long time in this role. And it's an interesting moment in history when we think about what's happening in our country, um, how uh, some of our nation's history uh, you know, challenges people. And there uncomfortable with it and I'm wondering if you can talk about that
3: well there there you know there is I think this is a moment of reflection and a moment of real real change in many people's thinking about uh, what should be the focus of history and how it should be interpreted and you know even you know right now in some ways I'm in the thick of it in in uh, a debate o- over whether the state—excuse me—a debate over whether the statue of John Mason should be removed from the state capitol. It's this kind of, uh, you know, re reconsideration of the history that's been taken for granted for many years. It makes it such an exciting time in history and such a good moment, I think, for a new state historian to come in and really grapple with what I think are going to be some challenging issues in the years ahead.
2: You mentioned John Mason. Tell us about him. I believe he was responsible for the death of some Native people in our state.
3: Oh, absolutely. And here is the, you know, this is this is one of the places where I really feel uncomfortable because in, in you know, I think some people would say I'm on the wrong side of history in this one. I think I'm on the right side of it, but here's the situation. John Mason is decried by uh, many people because of his role in what has come to be known as the massacre at Mystic. And that was a moment in the Pequot War when uh, Connecticut soldiers and uh, their Narragansett and Mohegan allies participated in an attack on a Pequot fort near what is today Groton. Mason and his English soldiers were inside the fort. They were faring really badly, and he ordered the fort torched. And in that conflagration, uh, they estimate that as many as 700, 400 to 700 men, women, and children died. It was, you know, it was a horrible carnage. And uh, there are many people who feel that he absolutely does not deserve, because of that event, a place of honor on the state capitol. And I'm very sympathetic to that. I certainly see how Mason has become a uh, kind of a, a symbol of the years of mistreatment that Connecticut's indigenous people received, you know, not just as a result of the Pequot War, but from years of uh, state oversight, state overseers, and the, the kind of uh, treatment by the General Assembly at, over the years for Native, Native people. And, and Mason has become the flashpoint in that struggle. And it's, you know, he's only one, I think, of many people who are valorized at the state capitol who could be reconsidered and found to be a little less noble than maybe prior generations thought they were. But uh, again, as I suggested at the end of the day, for reasons that are far too long than to go into here, I come down in support of him staying on the Capitol, but having him joined there by the people who are completely absent, perhaps Uncas, the sachem of the Mohegans, and Sassacus, the sachem of the Pequots, both great leaders in their own time, or even people like culture keepers, like Gladys Tantequidgen or the Fielding Sisters who uh, actually helped hold their tribes together under this incredible, uh, uh, not effort, but well, it was, I guess, an effort to to have the tribes disappear. So I'd like to see, rather than Mason come down, I'd like to see, important Native leaders join him so that we can use the Capitol to tell these very complicated and conflicted stories of Connecticut history.
2: You're hearing Walt Woodward, Connecticut state historian. We're going to continue talking about this role, what it means for the state in terms of um, highlighting public history, connecting residents uh, with the history uh, in our state. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We know history matters. And in Connecticut, we have a state historian whose job, in part, is to make history more tangible, more relevant to its residents. We're talking about the role because longtime state historian Walt Woodward will retire from the position at the end of the academic year. And UConn has begun to look for his replacement. Walt Woodward is with us on Zoom. And joining us now is Manisha Sinha, the Draper Chair in American History at UConn, who's leading the search for the next state historian. She's also the author of The Slave's Cause, a history of abolition.
0: Manisha, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy it was
2: so interesting to hear Walt talk about the the John Mason uh, statue and the questions around uh, whether uh, he should remain there uh, that's emblematic right of the, the way that we look at history and how uh, the context and the stories you know the meaning can change and these days uh, more people are learning about uh, John Mason and question uh, whether uh, his statue should remain so I'm wondering if you can talk about that in light of uh, you know looking for a new state of and what that role is for our state?
0: Yes, so I really think that when we look back at our past and we tell complete stories that include perhaps the dispossession of Native Americans, uh, the enslavement of African Americans, uh, we get a better picture of our history. And um, when we are looking for a new Connecticut State historian we would really like somebody who would bring all those diverse perspectives to bear uh, in our history. I notice myself when I uh, teach um, uh, a civil war course or any other course to my undergraduates, when we tell sanitized and um, somewhat ahistorical stories of our past, um, most people find history very boring. Uh, it really comes alive when you tell history in all its complexity. And I think it behooves us, especially today, um, when uh, we are thinking about um, the future of American democracy, the state of our own uh, state, Connecticut, and the American Republic as a whole, uh, that we bring all these stories to bear, that citizens are informed uh, and educated about our past. So we are really looking for somebody who would bring all those diverse perspectives um, to the position uh, and who would be able to reach out to the citizens of our state uh, in an informative manner. Uh, You
2: mentioned uh, when we think about the job description in it, quote, developing a more diverse and inclusive view of the history of Connecticut. So when we think about that, you know, what areas of expertise or scholarship are you looking for?
0: Well, we we are really fishing broadly here. Mm -hmm. Um, We have said we are interested in people who do indigenous history, who do, um, you know, racial, gender, urban, Uh, political. Your specialty could be in any one of these fields, uh, but you should be able to address a broad range of issues um, that affects the state. Uh, And that's what Walt got to the position, you know, uh, what was interesting about the ways in which he dealt with many of these uh, different aspects of Connecticut's history was that he was able to transcend his own specialization and really address all these issues. So, for instance, you just talked about the John Mason statue as a Civil War historian I have always been uh, very against uh, the memorialization of confederate leaders and generals. Uh, I thought they had no redeeming qualities to them, traitors to the republic who fought for slavery, and I was really thrilled when their statues started coming down thanks to the massive protests Uh, by the Movement for Black Lives after the murder of George Floyd. Um, And I think in New England, we need to also uh, look back at our past and reckon with aspects of our history that we may not be very proud of. Uh, When we commemorate people on state grounds that are maintained by public taxes, we should really be mindful of all the people in our populations. Uh, And um, there is a substantial presence of Native Americans in our state. Um, So I do think that these issues are definitely worth revisiting.
2: Again, you're hearing Manisha Sinha here on Where We Live. She's leading the search uh, for the next state historian, Walt Woodward, retiring uh, next year. Uh, Manisha, you made a point about how it's important not to uh, present sanitized history, and I wanted to bring into the conversation uh, a listener, uh, Paul Sabester, who's actually a volunteer researcher for the Hamden Historical Society. Paul, welcome to the show.
4: Oh, yes, sir. very happy to be here.
2: So tell me about the work that you're doing. I understand that you started observing trends in racism and deeds and maps that you dug up, and then you started translating them in posts on your neighborhood Facebook group. Why did you do that, and what was the response?
4: Well, it was uh, finding in the original deed to uh, my house dating from 1950 this uh, clause prohibiting uh, occupancy f- for any purpose other than Domestic employment by anyone other than the white race, and what I found really obnoxious, particularly about that, was how it was buried in uh, the middle of a long list of routine specifications of lot sizes and building costs, et cetera. Like they really wanted to hide it. So I, I did bring that to the, the attention in uh, in this, this group, and actually, a whole group got, got founded for, uh to. Uh, Advocate for better housing choices in our particular neighborhood that has seen a lack of diversity in, uh, in, in housing choices and in, in racially. Mm.
2: Uh, so you mentioned that there's a whole group on Facebook now. Uh, so right. when this information is shared more widely in Hamden, you know, what's the response from people who didn't, don't know this history?
4: Well, it's uh, there was an effort uh, this coming, this recently to amend the charter of Hamden. That's up, up for renewal this this year, and uh, among the things that that would allow is for a reform of the of the zoning laws. Unfortunately, that uh, uh, petition we had launched to uh, reform the charter did not get enough signatures. But there'll still be hope to uh, to get get it on the ballot eventually.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Paul Savester, for telling us a little bit about how uh, you're taking the history in your town and connecting uh, to it to a wider audience uh, in Hamden. Amisha Sinha, I wanted to go back to you because I thought it was a great example of uh, thinking about uh, the history that, you know, is unknown and using, uh, you know, social media to bring it to a wider audience to, to create a conversation.
0: Absolutely. I think that is just what's so wonderful about history. Uh, The kind of research um, that the previous speaker did is is fascinating. Uh, You know, it's really important that we understand that history is not myth-making. It's finding evidence uh, and looking at things in a new way. Um, It just does give us a more complete and whole picture of the past and tells us a bit about our present uh, and where we would like to go in the future. So it's precisely that kind of wonderful historical research that I think should inform us and our public conversations uh, about history. Um, There is a tendency sometimes to dismiss uh, certain new histories as, quote, politically correct history. But, you know, this kind of research has been done for a long time and continues to be done um, sometimes by our local historians who are you know, deeply immersed in local records uh, and they can really tell us uh, some broad things about our past. So um, yes, I, I think this is precisely the kinds of conversations uh, that we should be having today uh, and how I envision Uh, the role of the state historian and how Walt uh, actually fashioned it um, to be a place uh, to to sort of educate our citizens, but also to listen in and to have a sort of a give and take on what our public histories should look like. Mm
2: So we mentioned that this is a balance between academic scholarship, but also public facing duties. And so uh, now that um, you've been uh, advertising that this um, job will be available come next year, what are you hearing from people? Are you getting lots of recommendations for the sixth Connecticut State Historian?
0: Yes. uh, You know, firstly, people are a little surprised to hear that we have such a position. uh, And then they sort of say, well, what happened to Walt? We don't want him to go. And I said, neither do we, but it is his decision indeed to retire um, and it'll be big shoes to fill. Uh, I'm getting a lot of interest uh, from um, young historians, historians who have been working on uncovering um, the forgotten colonial histories of slavery the slave trade i myself am very interested in the history of abolition in new england as a whole uh, but also in connecticut so there is a lot of interest uh, in the position uh and i'm hoping that we get somebody who can you know carry forth uh the the sort of legacy of the position but also bring perhaps uh digital expertise um uh, bring uh some cutting edge scholarship that has been done on uh new england uh recently in the last few years um so yes there is a lot of interest there uh, and i'm looking forward to to simply you know reading through all the files and and finding someone who who might be wor- a worthy successor to Walt Woodward mm.
2: Oh, Walt, you're still with us. I imagine that also this person needs to be uh, passionate about history, right? And and uh, talking you, with people.
3: <laughs> you know, passion is the key. And I, I, uh, if they bring, if they bring a love for the history of this state to the position with them, that it, 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 they will succeed. And Manusha is right. I think the focus is, it, it, you know, it's a good time to be focused on telling complete stories and uh revisiting all of the history in thoughtful ways and and combine that with a passion for connecting ordinary people to the history of this state and it's going to be that they'll do you know they they will do the perfect job and i'll be their biggest champion (laughs)
2: Yeah, Walt, uh, when you were on last, we were talking about uh, your new book, uh, and uh, it was called Creating Connecticut, Critical Moments That Shaped a Great State. We were talking about the election cake, and people were so excited to hear from you, and that was a a popular show. We hope to have you back even after retirement. I'm sure you'll be uh, doing some very interesting things.
3: Thank you so much. You know, historians never retire. They just pursue (laughs) new projects.
2: was Ken. That's Walt Woodward, who is our Connecticut State Historian. Again, he's still the State Historian until the end of the academic year. Uh, But there's a a search for his replacement. And uh, we were talking with Manisha Sinha about that. She's leading the search. We're going to tweet out a link to the official job posting at Where We Live. Again, Professor Manisha Sinha and Walt Woodward, thank you for your time today.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you.
2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to hear about the inspiration behind the Black Heritage Trail opening in the city of New London. First, it's our fall membership drive. You listen to Where We Live, so you know we talk to a lot of different people. We hit on a lot of different topics, and hopefully you learn a lot about the state we call home. Support the conversations you hear on Where We Live with a pledge of support. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more.
1: Thanks for listening to Connecticut Public Radio here. I'm Patrick Scahill with Katie Talarski asking for your pledge of support for great local programs like Where We Live. The number that you can call to make that pledge is 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org and make your pledge there. You can check out all our thank you gifts. And, of course, you can check out all the great programming that we have to offer uh, to you uh, for making that pledge. But do make the call right now, one 800 584 2788 or wnpr.org.
5: Hi, Katie. Hi, Patrick. Good to be here with you today with the Where We Live team. Um, If you are listening to this program right now, you know how long Where We Live has been on the air here in Connecticut and all of the um, issues that we've covered. Um, Every day, we are bringing you new topics that are important for you to hear, uh, that are helping you learn more about your state, uh, your community. And um, hopefully you are appreciating that. And hopefully you will help us to support the programming like where we live here on Connecticut Public Radio. We can only do it with your support. Uh, the number 1-800-584-2788 uh, or go online. It's easy, ctpublic.org.
1: Yeah. And we do really view this, uh, Katie, as a, a community service. This is a service that's obviously uh, g- comes to you uh, free of charge. You can choose whether or not you can support it. And uh, if you're in a position where uh, you can't, that's okay. Uh, There are people um, out there who can. And if that's you, please step up now uh, to make that donation, not only for yourself, but for the community to ensure that all these great conversations that you hear every single um, weekday here on Where We Live continue. These are conversations about art, conversations about music, conversations about Uh, social media and things that are in the news. And of course, uh, Lucy is talking to elected officials um, like Governor Ned Lamont, uh, Senate House leadership, folks who are impacting your everyday life with the decisions that they're making. Uh, We hold them accountable here on this program. Uh, And Connecticut Public, our newsroom, holds these leaders accountable because you make that pledge of support. You make that donation. You make all that possible. So do make that call right now, 1-800-584-2788, or go to uh, ctpublic.org. Where's the where we have that nice little donate button, which you can click, see all our thank you gifts and make your pledge that way.
5: One great thank you item we have is the where we live ceramic mug. Of course we have a new logo, new branding for where we live with a very cool um, asterisk um, design. So that for a pledge of six dollars a month can be yours. You can show your support for the team um, and uh, and support Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, and support, of course, where we live. Uh, Again, for $6 a month, that Sustainer um, membership is so great for you. It's easy. Um, You can know that you're supporting great programming here on Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, And uh, again, it helps to support us over uh, the coming year and months and years. Uh, So uh, think about that. Uh, When you do call right now, 1-800-584-2788. Or again, online, ctpublic.org. Lots of thank you items. Of course, it is um, the L.L. Bean wreath season as well. So uh, check that out when you're there, ctpublic.org.
1: Yeah, when you make that pledge, obviously, you're supporting programs uh, like Where We Live. You're also supporting other local programs that we have here, like the Colin McEnroe Show. Um, uh, Audacious uh, with, with Kion uh, Wolf and lots of other uh, news and information that you can get every single day here. We can do that because of you. And uh, we actually have a fun uh, thank you gift that's sort of combining three of our shows. Uh, we don't want to mention too many thank you gifts here in a break, but mm-hmm. it's related to the Where We Live mug. Uh, you can get the Where We Live mug, a Colin McEnroe mug, and an Audacious mug uh, to uh, a three, I don't know what you would call that, a combo, I guess. A three a 3 mug combo. Yeah, I like the, I like the combo. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's for a pledge of $12 a month. So Uh, If you're in a position where you can make that uh, donation, uh, please do it because it does go so far here at this station uh, to keep all this great journalism going. 1 800 584 2788 or ctpublic.org.
5: Think about how many times over the last year and a half uh, when we've been through a global pandemic, um, through a contentious presidential election, so many um, news items that you've turned to Connecticut Public Radio for you've turned to where we live to hear updates from our elected officials, updates from the governor, updates from commissioners and scientists and people who are helping you understand uh, what's happening in our world. Uh, Support that now, call us 1-800-584-2788 or go online to ctpublic.org and thanks.
1: That number is one 800 or 2788 or wnpr.org. Make your pledge today, not only for yourself, but for the community. And thanks in advance for doing it.
2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Do you know the stories of New London's Black Heritage? A new public history project aims to highlight some of these stories and to inspire city residents and visitors, too. Joining us now on Zoom is new London City Councilman Curtis Goodwin. He was so inspired by the story of one local historical figure. He launched a career in politics, and he set out to honor this person in what is now a 15-stop Black Heritage Trail that's opening later this week. Councilman Goodwin, welcome to our show.
6: Thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate it.
2: So tell us about that pivotal uh, presentation you attended, and you learned about someone named Ichabod Pease.
6: Yeah, that's correct. So just about three or so years ago, I stumbled across a presentation that just inspired me, um, just hearing the stories of resilience, you know, learning about someone who at 81 years old, who was, you know, freed himself twice as a slave, decided to, you know, continue, continuing on and uh, persevering to do so. Tell, things,
2: And so Ichabod Pease opened a school for New London's Black children in 1837 when he was 81 years old. He was born into slavery uh, in the 18th century. This is someone that you didn't hear about growing up in New London.
6: No, unfortunately, in the New London public school systems, not much is taught as it relates to uh, Black history or Black culture in general you know, the the most you get into it is uh, slavery or the Underground Railroad, but not many stories of resilience or stories that, you know, exist in your hometown.
2: And so fast forward to the launching of this Black Heritage Trail, Ichabod Pease being one of the people uh, that'll be honored. And so talk through how you went about uh, you and others in this project in highlighting particular stories, Councilman Goodwin.
6: Yeah, it was tough. I mean, there's so many. Lo and behold, the, you know, finding out that there was one and that inspiring me, and then you know, trying to find 15 others, it becomes rather difficult. But uh, I enlisted, uh, you know, Land- New London landmarks and entrusted them to coming up with what those top 15 would be. The number 15 wasn't something we just came up with uh, because we were funded by a matching grant. We decided that would be the most, the most amount that would be the most feasible
2: and this will have uh, 15 markers but just the beginning i understand because you hope to also incorporate new london's indigenous history can you talk about that
6: yeah i'm super excited uh you know it gets overwhelming talking about it you know to even get at get to this point but we hope to embark on you know an indigenous trail as well in new london nor is new england a stranger to their the intertwining of uh indigenous roots within our community so i just think it's important that we keep the conversation on history going because it's still living history. Um, and we just you know, tell it more inclusively and intentionally.
2: You mentioned new London landmarks. Also with us here on Zoom is Lonnie Braxton II. He's a historian of black history who worked on this project, this black heritage trail. Uh, his day job is senior assistant state's attorney. And I can call you Braxton.
7: Yes, good morning. <laughs> and thanks for uh, the opportunity. This was a great project and uh, Councilman Good uh, inspired us all. Um, you know, I uh, grew up in Mississippi and I've always been a, a fan of uh, Westerns. And many years ago, there was a John Ford movie uh, called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And uh, one of the quotes was, when legend becomes fact, print the legend. And one of the things that I found out one of the uh, sites that I was uh, given uh, to do the research on was called the Hotel Bristol. And it's a building downtown New London. I passed every day on my way to uh, work at E.B., walked by it uh, when I walked through uh, downtown, and it's on Bank Street. As it turns out, in 1919, Red Summer, uh, 5,000 people surrounded this, uh, the Hotel Bristol and uh, attacked a number of black sailors and uh, patrons who were inside this hotel. And as I'm reading and doing a uh, bit of research, uh, finding out about this, uh, it was interesting to see what some of the newspaper reports were throughout the country. However, some of the reports said that it was because the black sailors had attacked uh, a few white sailors. And, but the official report said that uh, the black sailors for a while had been uh, being harassed had made reports and what have you. But uh, the London police made uh, uh, an arrest of two white sailors and from that stemmed this riot. Uh, They called out the shore patrol, they called out the uh, police. Uh, It was quite something. And on the May 30th, 1919 edition of the evening day, the newspaper of the day, it said in an effort to clean up every Negro on the street, a mob of 400 or more white sailors aided and abetted by several hundred civilians, ex-servicemen and Marines Started a fight Thursday night that filled the principal streets of the city with the howling night of excited men and made it necessary to sound the riot call on the fire alarm at ten thirty six, and this was not the only uh, incident of that uh, year. Uh, about a month later, to the day, a second incident took place, and uh, that one wouldn't have been reported at all but for the uh, sailors uh, who were the shore patrol on their way to this incident hit a fire hydrant causing damage and there was a dispute between the city of New London and the sub base as to who was going to pay. And as a result of that, there was an actual reporting in the paper. Otherwise it would have been lost to history.
2: So that's another in, example. Uh, another example, Braxton. We heard earlier from the councilman talking about Ichabod Pease, someone uh, who inspires, but also Hotel Bristol, as you mentioned, important to highlight uh, these also these moments in history of sorrow, and that we need to confront them and not let them just be forgotten.
7: Well, you know, history, um, uh, you know, is is quite interesting because. I grew up where people would say things like uh, the truth will set you free. And we had a habit of uh, uh, thinking and believing that. And if you really believe it, we should run toward the truth. And uh, New London, uh, through the efforts of people like counseling Good, uh, the London Landmarks and others, uh, we've done that. Uh, however, some people, instead of running toward the truth, run toward a myth and embrace it. And we've been fortunate here that we are trying to tell everyone's story because it's all American history. It's not uh, black history. It's not uh, one group's history. It's all of our history, because Mm -hmm. that's what made this place such a great place to live.
2: Uh, We met we heard from the councilman about 15 markers just the beginning. Can you walk us through a, a couple more that will be unveiled on Thursday and, you know, Again, what it's going to mean to you and others on this project to see this?
7: Well, one of the most exciting ones, I think, um, is the one for Spencer Lancaster. Mm -hmm. Mr. Lancaster is unique because he's alive in his mid-90s. And the Bristol Hotel happened in 1919. And when I came to London in sixty eight, there were still people alive who probably remember that incident. Well, unlike that case, we have Mr. Lancaster. We can ask him questions. You know, He was a veteran, he was a civil rights activist, he was a father, he was a citizen. He was the first elected official in New London of color. So he paved the way for a lot of people. Uh, there's a quote uh, that was made of Paul Robeson. Uh, he's the tallest tree in our forest. A mm. uh, second one would be Linwood Bland. Uh, he passed, uh, he wrote a book a view from the 60s. That book turned out to be the best seller that the London Historical Society has ever had. And uh, it gave an awful lot of insight. Uh, Shiloh Baptist Church was another. Uh, it was pastored by Reverend Garvin. It was the oldest black church uh, in, if memory serves me correctly, in a New London. Um, there is uh, the uh, site of the burial place of. Hercules and his wife, Flora, he was the governor of the Negroes. And it sounds strange, governor of the Negroes, but these people actually made petitions to the state legislature seeking the freedom for all of the people of color uh, in the state.
2: We heard Councilman Goodwin say that earlier, you know, growing up in New London, didn't learn about these figures in school. And so now with the launching of this Black Heritage Trail, uh, not just visitors, but school children in New London will be able to see and read and learn about them. That must make you feel good.
7: This is going to be uh, quite interesting. I think not only will the children uh, learn about uh, the history, anyone who comes to New London happens to see one of those plaques will learn. This is going to be posted on websites concerning the city. So it's an educational process because without things like this, often you will think you didn't have a place and you didn't contribute and what uh this will do for all of us is it will tell the story that we all participated we all actually were involved in the making of new london mm.
2: councilman goodwin you're still with us your response
6: i mean, I mean it- it's, it makes me kind of speechless, you know, to you know, hear Lonnie and to have worked with it with such a a group with so much death. I mean, you have generations of black history working on this project where in, in my opinion it's a way for us to not only transform the narrative within the city or within our our, our region, but also to reconcile with folks like Igabak peas and all those um all those in, that are our ancestors that we stand on the backs of. I I truly feel like, you know, we stand on the backs of our ancestors and those like living history, Spencer Lancaster. So I'm just proud um, and encouraged and this just gives me inspiration to keep going.
2: Mm. Well, it's been a pleasure to hear about this project, this public history project with New London City Councilman Curtis Goodwin and Lonnie Braxton II, a historian of Black history who also worked on this project. I understand it'll be unveiled this Thursday at 4 p.m., beginning at Mr. Spencer Lancaster's uh, home, followed by a ceremony at the Hempstead Houses. Thank you so much. We'll make sure we link it uh, on our website for our listeners to learn more. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Kitty Katie Pellico produced today's show. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. As I mentioned earlier, it's the first week of Connecticut Public Radio's fall fundraising campaign. You learn a lot about your state here on this show. Support the conversations you hear with a pledge of support. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more.
5: THANKS FOR LISTENING TO WHERE WE LIVE HERE TODAY ON CONNECTICUT PUBLIC RADIO. I'M KATIE TULARSKI HERE WITH PATRICK SCAHILL um, SAYING THANK YOU FOR LISTENING AND we're and ASKING YOU TO ha- ALSO SUPPORT THE PROGRAMMING HERE TODAY, 1-800-584-2788 OR CTPUBLIC.ORG. Um, THOSE ARE THE WAYS THAT YOU CAN GET IN TOUCH WITH US AND BECOME A MEMBER, BECOME A PART OF THE COMMUNITY of people that are um, you know, members of Connecticut Public Radio, that are supporters, that are curious, um, that are involved. Uh, do it now, help us to uh, reach our goals, 1-800-584-2788 or ctpublic.org.
1: Yeah, and we obviously understand that you uh, you value this service because you're listening right now and uh, you do get something out of it. We are hoping that you uh, value it enough uh, to, if you are in a position to financially support it, make that donation now. We only come to you a few times a year to ask for that pledge. And that's really how it works here at this station. We rely on our, uh, on our members, on our listeners too, if they're in that position to support the station, to step up and do that. And uh, maybe it's at the level of uh, $6 a month so you can get the Where We Live ceramic mug uh, maybe it's at the level of $12 a month if you want a Where We Live mug and a Colin McEnroe mug and an Audacious uh, uh, mug as well. Um, but really, at whatever level you can give, that donation is going to go so far here to uh, help Lucy and her team continue to do the work uh, that they do so, so well, interviewing people from uh, all across the state, uh, the nation, and in some cases the world, uh, about their lives, their experiences, uh, the things that they're working on, uh, their stories. They can share that because you make that pledge. one 800 584 or ctpublic.org.
5: Patrick mentioned the $6 a month pledge level for the Where We Live mug, a great option and a great way for you to become a sustaining member of Connecticut Public Radio. So you know that uh, your dollars will go and support us moving forward. Um, If that's something that makes sense to you, Uh, please do it now. Please call us 1-800-584-2788 or ctpublic.org. So many thank you items on our website. But again, the the important thing is that you're um, getting the news and information that you expect, the quality uh, in-depth reporting and conversations um, on Connecticut Public Radio. So call us now 1-800-584-2788 or ctpublic.org
1: and uh we do understand that obviously your your life is uh is very busy you have a lot going on and maybe you don't want to think uh in the future about uh giving your donation here uh, to this station you want to just think hey i'm a supporter i can i, I just know i'm doing that So we have a great solution for that. It's called our monthly sustainer program. It's been growing astronomically here where uh, folks basically say, hey, take a set amount off of my credit or debit card each month and then I'm good. I know I'm supporting uh, this service. It's really like a subscription to public radio. So that's another option at ctpublic.org or give us a call at 1-800-584-2788. And thanks so much in advance.